We've got the perfect ingredient list for today's episode. On the list, we've got Laboam, we've got Rivalries, and we've got Absinthe. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro. We're mixing up the perfect combination. After the huge success of Manolis Scope, Puccini started looking for the subject for his next opera. Subject matters included an opera based on Buddha, and he also looked at one of the Sicilian short stories by Giovanni Verga, La Lupa, or The She-Wolf. Puccini knew that another one of these short stories from the same collection had been the source for the plot for Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. After securing the rights for the libretto, Puccini traveled to Sicily to do research, including listening to folk music, studying the regional dress, and even photographing locations for possible settings. On his travels home, he met a contessa on a ship playing some Wagner at the piano, as he tend to do while having a few drinks. And this particular contessa that he met turned out to be the daughter of Wagner's second wife. When Puccini told her about his idea for La Lupa, She expressed her immediate dislike for the idea of an opera that has a murder committed during a fit of sexual jealousy, all during a Good Friday religious procession. After dropping the idea of La Lupa, Puccini returned to a previous idea that he had had on Merger's novel Scenes of Bohemian Life that was first published in 1851 and then later turned into a five-act play. The play was considered highly controversial and was later withdrawn. In 1893, Puccini was returning from Turin, and he bumped into his good friend Leon Cavallo and told him that he was working on an opera based on Merger's novel. Now, Leon Cavallo, for all of you opera fans out there, is also the composer that wrote Pagliacci. By Puccini telling Leon Cavallo that he was working on an opera based on the Merger novel, this sparked a huge fallout between the two and even led to public debates in two rival newspapers. Now, picture this, my friends. Two rival composers two rival newspapers, each bashing it out over a period of a few weeks. Leon Cavallo's publisher would publish a letter in one paper, and Puccini and his team would publish a rebuttal in another paper. This went on for a while, until eventually, their already rocky, at-best friendship was completely destroyed. With all this talk of drama, and with all the discussion we're going to be having soon of Bohemians in Paris, I think it's time we make a drink. Absinthe drip, absolutely one of my favorite drinks, and I really think that no home bar should be without a bottle of absinthe or Pernod, which is a little bit more refined version of absinthe. Absinthe, of course, is a liquor that is about 90 to 150% proof. It's very strong. This is not something that you want to take the top off the bottle and start chugging. Of course, absinthe made famous in movies, in literature, in art. Hemingway, James Joyce, Toulouse-Lautrec, Picasso, Van Gogh, Oscar Wilde, Edgar Allan Poe, Eric Satie, all famous absinthe drinkers of the time. Absinthe has a really wonderful nickname called the Green Fairy. Absinthe has a really beautiful green color, and whenever you make an absinthe drip, if you make it right, it becomes a cloudy green after everything is mixed together. It's just a very, very, very beautiful drink. 
but it also is a drink that you want to drink responsibly. So I'm going to tell you how to make it. We're going to make one, and then we're going to sip on it and enjoy it for the rest of the time that we're discussing Bohemians and Paris and all things absinthe-related. An absinthe drip is really, really easy to make. It's just three ingredients. Of course, you need absinthe. You need a sugar cube, and you need ice-cold water. Make sure the water is absolutely cold. You take your absinthe spoon, you put it over the glass, and on top of the absinthe spoon, you place one sugar cube. Now you take one and a half ounces of absinthe, and you pour that into the glass, but you pour it over the sugar cube. Now, this is where the excitement happens. You take a match, and you very carefully light the sugar cube on fire. You may also want to have a fire extinguisher or 911 on standby when you do this. Please also, for the safety of your hair, your friends around you, your homeowner's insurance, and your eyebrows, do not lean over the glass when you light the sugar cube on fire. That is my disclaimer. I am not responsible. And now you take two ounces of ice-cold water and you pour it very, very slowly. This is where the word drip comes in play. You pour it very slowly over the remainder of the sugar cube. This puts out the fire, first of all, so it's a safety precaution. But also this allows the sugar cube to slowly melt. After the sugar cube has dissolved, you take your absinthe spoon and you just very gently stir the drink. This will cause the drink to get a little cloudy. And now you have the perfect absinthe drip. Drink responsibly and enjoy. My friends, are you enjoying that absinthe drip? Have you been visited by the Green Fairy? Merger's novel was written as a linked series of stories or vignettes that show four friends, Rodolfo the writer, Marcello the painter, Chenard the musician, and Colline the philosopher, and their love affairs in the Bohemian quarter of Paris in the 1830s. The two versions of the operas, both based on the same source material and many of the same characters, are, however, surprisingly quite different. In Leon Cavallo's version, Marcello and Musetta are the main couple. In Puccini's version, it's Rodolfo and Mimi. And another major difference, two acts of Puccini's opera have absolutely no parallels to Leon Cavallo's opera. Let me break those differences down for you right here. In Puccini's opera, Act 1 takes place on Christmas Eve, and it takes place in the Bohemian's garret and the boy's garret, and this is where Rodolfo and Mimi meet. In Act 2, 
It's Christmas Eve on the terrace of Café Mamus, and this is where Marcello and Musetta reconcile after one of their many fights. They're an on-again, off-again couple. In Act 3, it's winter, just a few months after Christmas, and Rodolfo and Mimi have had a, a quarrel, and they've reconciled, and Marcello and Musetta have had a quarrel, and they decide to separate. And then in Act 4, it's a few months later, in the autumn, or early winter, and we're back in the boys' apartment in the garret. And this is, of course, where we have the death of Mimi. So that's Puccini's version. Now, in Leon Cavallo's version, Act 1 takes place on Christmas Eve, but it takes place in a private room inside the Café Mamus. And here is where Marcello and Musetta meet. Act 2 takes place in the spring in the courtyard of Musetta's apartment building. And here, Musetta is throwing a party. It's an eviction party. And she has broken up with her rich patron. And here also, Mimi leaves with a very rich gentleman and separates from Rodolfo. In Act 3 of Cavallo's version, it's the autumn, and we're at the boys' apartment again in the garret. Musetta again leaves Marcello, and Rodolfo rejects Mimi when she tries to return. And then, of course, Act 4 is Christmas Eve at the Bohemian's garret, and this is where Mimi dies. Now, in Puccini's version, there's also a missing act. And by missing act, I mean the text was written, but it was cut, and Puccini did not compose the music for it. So it exists in an original uh, libretto, but it never made it quite to the finished score. And this missing act is in the springtime, where it's the party at Musetta's apartment. It's her eviction party. Mimi leaves with this rich gentleman and decides to separate from Rodolfo. He's having a drunken idiot moment and causing a scene, and that's what causes this particular fight. In the Puccini version, had there been this missing act, it would have fallen between Act 3 and Act 4. In short, Leon Cavallo sticks to the novel, while Puccini's version is more dramatically moving. For one thing, Puccini realized that Mimi's death would be more impactful if she and Rodolfo were the focus of attention from the very beginning, and it would also have a more of an emotional investment for the audience. Cavallo keeps the focus on Musetta and Marcello until the last act, and then, of course, we have Mimi's death. The title, La Boheme, literally translates to the Bohemians. So that leads us to the question, what is a Bohemian? The use of the word Bohemian first appeared in the English language in the 19th century to describe the non-traditional lifestyles of marginalized and impoverished artists, writers, journalists, musicians, and actors in major European cities. Or it could be 2020 right now and just about everyone in the performing arts.
there are different types of bohemians, and I thought it was really interesting, and I, I, I want to break this down for you. So when you think of bohemians, there's more than one. There are the nouveau bohemians, and these are the bohemians that are rich, who attempt to join traditional bohemianism with contemporary culture. There are gypsy bohemians, the expatriate types. They create their own gypsy ideas of nirvana wherever they go. There are the beat bohemians. They're drifters, non-materialistic, and art-focused. There are the Zen bohemians, and these are the post-beat bohemians, focused on spirituality rather than art. And then there are the dandy bohemians. No money, but they try to appear as if they have it by buying and displaying expensive and rare items. In the 20th century of the United States, the bohemian impulses were seen in several generational breakdowns. In the 1940s, we had the hipsters. In the 1950s, we had the beat generation, writers such as William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg. In the 60s and 70s, we had the hippies. And then in the 2000s, there was a resurgence of the hipsters. So these are just a few different categories showing bohemianism in the 20th century and moving forward. So the story of La Boheme can be very simply reduced to the following few words. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. And girl dies in boy's arms. On February 1st, 1896, a young Italian conductor, Arturo Toscanini, conducted the world premiere. He had also conducted the world premiere for Leoncavallo's Pagliacci. Remember Leoncavallo from a little earlier? Several people who knew Toscanini in later years said that he did not think very highly of Leoncavallo's opera, Pagliacci. He was friends with both Leoncavallo and Puccini. Now, during all of this, he had had a falling out of favor with Leoncavallo's publisher because he had pulled out of the first Roman production of a new opera by Mascagni, with whom Toscanini had had several falling outs with before this. When Leoncavallo asked Toscanini to conduct the world premiere of his newest opera, I Medici, the publisher told him, if you are so fond of Toscanini, then go ahead, but you will have to find a new publisher. All of these factors may have helped Toscanini's lack of interest in Leoncavallo's Boheme as well. Two factors that led him to conduct the world premiere of Puccini's La Boheme was, one, he saw the score and loved what he saw, and two, he had recently become the artistic director for the theater at which the premiere was to be held, the Teatro Reggio in Turin. Puccini had originally opposed the choice of the theater for the premiere. He wrote to his publisher, Ricordi, I'm not very happy with it. In the first place, the theater is acoustically dead. Secondly, because encores aren't allowed. Thirdly, because the conductor is an unpleasant man. And fourthly, because it's too close to the waspish Milanese, who will certainly make fun of me. Later in discussions, Puccini said of Toscanini, Try to have him engaged for all places where Boheme will be given, as he is more of an artist than any of the other conductors. He may be a scoundrel, but he has soul which is something that all the others lack. His reference to Toscanini as an unpleasant man leads one to assume 
that somewhere along the line he had had a run-in with a notoriously outspoken, sharp-tongued Italian conductor that befell nearly everyone in the business sooner or later. And of course, Puccini's attitude soon turned to total admiration. Puccini wrote to Ricordi, the orchestra, Toscanini, extraordinary, he's highly intelligent. This began an outstandingly fruitful professional relationship and a somewhat more fragile but nevertheless enduring friendship. Puccini wrote to Toscanini later about the world premiere of Tosca, and he said, Remember, my friend, you must be the one to conduct my world premiere, for you must be the one to deflower her. Even though the friendship, as I said just a moment ago, was a little rocky from time to time, Toscanini would, in 1924, conduct the Requiem from Act Three of Puccini's opera Edgar at Puccini's funeral. And Toscanini is quoted at saying that the great hope for all opera in the world died when Puccini died. The first time that I heard La Boheme live was in undergrad school. The opera workshop that fall did Act Four among other things on the program, but they ended the program with Act Four from La Boheme. And of course, this is the act that starts off fun with the boys horsing around and then, of course, ends with Rodolfo grasping and holding Mimi's body as she has died. And I remember as a student, I think I was a sophomore, I remember sitting there watching this, weeping and loving every minute of this incredible piece of theater that I had just seen, very simply staged in the recital hall for the opera workshop. And I loved it so much, I went back to the other two nights to see all of the performances, just so I could see this act four again. And I really think that this is where my love for Puccini, it didn't start here. It had started a few years before, but I think this is where it was solidified, was seeing this beautiful story of these people, these characters being played out by these people that I knew that I was in class with every day. But seeing these characters come to life and then, of course, ultimately die on stage had such a huge emotional impact for me that it took me a long time to kind of get over that. The first time that I heard a full recording of the opera was a really great recording with Luciano Pavarotti and, and Freni. And I remember listening to this recording multiple times. I got it on CD and 
sitting in my dorm room listening to this and not knowing at that time a whole lot of Italian. I know a little bit. Following along the score and just in awe of this incredible world that this composer that I was falling head over heels in love with daily, this atmosphere that he was creating with these wonderful people. And that recording, I think I can truly say, changed my life in a very profound way. There are several instances of La Boheme reappearing in modern pop culture. Probably the most obvious one for people is the Broadway musical by Jonathan Larson, Rent. It opened on Broadway in 1996 and closed in 2008. And in fact, when Jonathan Larson was composing Rent, he went to see a production of La Boheme at New York City Opera. He bought the score, bought the libretto, he bought the Merger novel, and did incredible research to recreate these characters in a very modern setting set in New York City during the height of the AIDS epidemic in this country. It's a very beautiful, very moving retelling of this incredible piece. And then in 2002, for 228 performances, there was an actual production of the opera La Boheme on Broadway, and it was directed by Baz Luhrmann. Incredible production. And then fast forward a few years later, and Baz would once again reintroduce La Boheme, but mixed in also with La Traviata for the movie musical Moulin Rouge. My friends, I've received a couple emails, questions that people have asked, and I'm going to answer those questions. By the way, if you have any questions that you have for me about any of the Puccini operas or anything else that we have coming up, shoot me an email, themischievousmaestro at gmail.com, and I will try to get that answered for you in a future podcast. And if I don't get it answered on the podcast, I will email you back with an answer anyway. But shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. One of the emails I got, Ryan in New York City, wanted to know, why is Boham one of the most performed operas in the world? I don't know the exact answer for this. I haven't done a scientific study. I just know that the opera is performed so much because it is such a beautiful story. The music sweeps you up into this incredible world of emotion, but it's the characters on stage. It's the story. It's these people that you could know that your next door neighbors or people at your church or at the grocery store. It's everybody. It's anybody in our lives. And these people are so in love with one another. And then all of a sudden they have this horrible tragedy that takes place that really, as just as they were getting ready to all go their different ways, really brings them back together. I think it's the simplicity of the story. It's the dramatic element of the way the story is told. I think that's one of the reasons why it's performed so often. In fact, there is very rarely a day that goes by where La Boheme is not being performed somewhere on this earth. Jeff in Texas sent an email and said, as a conductor, what makes La Boheme interesting? Well, Jeff, that's a really, really great question. And I think part of the answer to Ryan is also part of your answer. I think it's the real people. It's the emotion. It's the dramatic telling. It's also sometimes the simplicity. Puccini can go from having every member of the orchestra playing fortissimo really, really loud to having, you know, Mimi accompanied by one instrument in the orchestra. It's those juxtapositions, that dichotomy that Puccini creates that really makes it, for me at least, interesting. 
Also, Act Two of La Boheme, just as a little side story, is for me as a conductor, in my opinion, the hardest thing in the opera repertoire for a conductor to conduct. There are so many things happening. It's so crazy. It's only 18 and a half, 19 minutes long, but it is just pure terror, or at least it can be. And I have seen productions where it has turned into pure terror for the conductor. But when it clicks, when you've got the right cast and the right orchestra and the right production, it's also one of the most magical 18 and a half, 19 minutes of your life as a conductor. Anna uh, sent an email from Canada. Hi, Anna in Canada. And she wanted to know, is Boheme a good first-time opera to attend? Yes, the answer is absolutely yes. Any opera is a good first-time opera to attend. Just go to the opera. But Boheme is especially good, again, because of the story, the way the story's told, the music, the characters. These are people, again, that you want to go up and you want to hug on stage when Mimi dies. You want to go up and shake her and say, no, please, just take your medicine. These are real people, and we fall in love with them. You know, the opera is relatively short. If there weren't any intermissions, the opera would be under two hours long. It's relatively short, but in that short amount of time, you fall so in love with these people, all of them, every single one of them. And that is why I think that Bohem is a great first-time opera to attend. Also, please don't ever let language be the reason you don't go to an opera, period. If the opera is performed in Italian, if it's in German, if it's in Russian, if it's in Swahili, just go to the opera because there's going to be supertitles. The supertitles will be the translation of your vernacular, wherever it's being performed, and that way you know what's going on. But again, if the opera is really, really good, like La Boheme, you don't need supertitles. The music tells you the story. But please don't ever let language be the reason you don't go to an opera. There's nothing like it. You can sit at home and listen to recordings all day long, but there's nothing that beats the joy and the thrill of a live performance. Speaking of recordings, my suggested recording that I would like to recommend to you all to add to your library has Tobaldi and Bergonzi singing Mimi and Rodolfo, and it's conducted by Tullio Serafin. Now, earlier we talked a lot about Arturo Toscanini. Tullio Serafin was an assistant to Toscanini and in the mid to late period of Toscanini's career. And Serafin played a lot of these operas, these world premieres of these operas with Toscanini conducting. And so for me as a conductor, when I'm listening to a recording that Tullio Serafin has done, it's almost as if you're hearing it from the horse's mouth because you know that if Tullio Serafin was in the pit playing these operas and Toscanini was on the podium, that means chances are Puccini was in the theater overseeing these rehearsals. And so it's almost a direct lineage to Puccini. So that is my recommended recording to you all, my friends. Tobaldi and Bergonzi, conducted by Tullio Serafin. It's an amazing recording. And if you want something to read, to go into a little deeper, uh, actually a lot deeper detail, there's a wonderful book called Puccini, His Life and Works by Julian Budin. If you're a Puccini fan, you must have this in your library. I highly recommend it. You can order it online. You can pick it up in your local bookstore. I would also like to point out that even though the composition of La Boheme broke the already fragile friendship of Puccini and Leon Cavallo, Puccini did attend Leon Cavallo's funeral in 1919. After all, Leon Cavallo was one of the seven librettists that helped Puccini on his first mega hit, Manon Lascaux. 
I'd like to end this episode with a shout out to one of my favorite opera companies that I have the pleasure of working with and have I've done a few shows with them and I've got a, a few coming up in the future. It's Opera Idaho in Boise, Idaho. The first time that I worked in Boise, I was blown away with this company, but I was also just blown away with the city. It's an incredible place, beautiful place to spend a few weeks working on an incredible piece of music. Opera Idaho is a company that they do so much. During a season, they have things going on almost every week. Outreach, educational, they're in schools. They tour the entire state of Idaho. They even go down into Utah. Their education outreach for both youths and adults is amazing. And then, of course, their productions are stunning. Check them out, operaidaho.org. They've got a great season coming up. If you come to one of those shows, I'm going to be conducting it. I can't tell you which one it is yet, although I know, but I'm not allowed to say it yet. If you come to the production and you happen to see me in the pit or see my name in the program, come down and say hi. Opera Idaho, check them out. So join us next time as we explore Puccini's shabby little shocker, Tosca, and sip on a wonderful cocktail, Trouble in Paradise. Pack your bags, we're heading to Rome. And remember, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson. 